Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Vertical Momentum, where we talk to thought leaders and game changers, and the gentleman I have on today is definitely both of those. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors for today, Maxwell Soaps. It's a veteran-owned company. Um, Now, I have diabetic, itchy skin, and I only use Maxwell Soaps because it has no detergents in it, Um, so I don't break out and I don't get, you know, that bad itchy rashy skin and the best thing about maxwell soaps is for every bar of soap that they sell they actually give a bar of soap to help clean up the the homeless population in los angeles so it's it's soap with a mission and it's all handmade hand batched so definitely check them out at maxwell soaps hey guys today um now in full disclosure uh, ben has been a friend of mine for many years he was the second podcast I was ever on, so he's one of the guys that got me started doing this. Uh, this gentleman, U.S. Marine, um, doing great things. He did great things in the uniform, but he's doing even better things out of the uniform. So, guys, welcome my my brother, Mr. Ben. How are you, brother? Never been better, Richard, and it's exciting to be back because it's been too long since we've talked. Yeah, it's been a couple of years now since I've been on your on your podcast. You were on like in the first month, I feel like, in January of 2019, before I even considered myself a podcaster. Yeah, so we're and you were one of the guys, you know, the first one of the first ones that ever had me on. So you know, you start. You're the one of the the founding fathers. You're you're an OG, as they say. Tell your wife I'm sorry for her because I'm sure that this has been a hobby that sometimes is annoying because you're always like, once you get the itch to podcast, it just gets exciting. But then also it can also be a big time suck because you just get so excited to do all these great things. So tell her I'm also sorry that you had this huge thing come into your life. As well, well. The funny thing is, is now that with home because we're homeschooling and now my wife is working from home. So now she listens to, when I edit it. She listens to every single episode that I do now. So, <laughs> so now she has to deal with it like two or three hours at a time a day. <laughs> So what's going on, my friend? How are you? Never been better. I've just, uh, here in Wisconsin, the snow just officially melted. I think we just lost our last snow drift. It's 50 degrees. And after a long winter of negative 25 and below freezing for like a month and a half, I am super excited for the refreshment of spring and the renewal of this next season of life. I love that. Um, And first of all, before we even start, I just want to thank you for being a brother in Christ. I think that's the most important thing um, that we're friends and, you know, we're brothers in Christ and we'll be with each other uh, eternally. So you have to get used to me. So uh, I just wanted to say thank you for that. Uh, It it means a a whole lot to me that you're in my inner circle. So tell us, tell us where you were born, what state you were born in and tell us what little Ben was like, because I want to know the, I want to get to know the guy behind the microphone. So what was little Ben like? Grew up on a farm in southern Wisconsin. The farm still exists. My dad still farms. I live about 30 minutes from that farm still today. Growing up, I was a very curious kid. I always asked a lot of questions. My grandmother lived at the end of her driveway, and therefore, and living out in the country, there wasn't a lot of room for having a lot of friends. So my grandmother really was my first best friend. Like I was always down there during the summer. She was always there when we got off the bus. And I always kind of jokingly describe her as she was like a, a warm chocolate chip cookie that was always there, always morsel, and it never betrayed you. 
because no matter what kind of day you had, grandma was always there to help make it better or whether she had a pot, piece of pie for you. Grandma's was always the place where I got to hang out. And I learned a lot of different things hanging out with grandma. I learned how to sew. I'm actually still the sewer in our family to this day because I was hanging out with my grandma back in the day. I'm the pie maker. Lots of different things that I learned from my grandma that a lot of other farm boys may not have learned as well. But growing up at a farm, I just, I got connected with work. I got connected with trying to also like, like maybe the sad side of growing up at a farm, I, I also fall like lost attractive to myself. Like a big, huge component of my story is always trying to fit in. And so growing up on the farm, I didn't always fit in with the farm life. And I didn't really know why I didn't really fit in with the kids that I was hanging around with. And I was just always this person going into conversations, trying to be the important part of being what they thought I needed to be to get liked. And that was almost my entire life, all the way through high school, middle school, all of that. And I was bullied, pushed down, and it just left me with this feeling like I don't know who I am and I'm running on autopilot. I don't know where I'm going. That feeling is what led me to the Marine Corps because it, the Marine Corps attracted me in a way that was like, I don't know who I am, but this guy that I'm talking to does. And it felt like my dare to be great moment. And so I'm going to do the scariest thing that I've ever chosen to do because I would have been voted least likely to join the Marine Corps. I couldn't run a mile. I couldn't do a pull-up. I was fearful of what was going in there. And so growing in, it was an extreme exercise of vulnerability, falling down. I mean, even in boot camp to go even a little bit deeper. I mean, there's a moment where about halfway through, we were up north in Camp Pendleton and I broke down crying because it was just the, the overwhelming feeling was just too much. And it just got to me. And in this moment, I learned what a brotherhood really was. Because up to this moment, I'd been kind of hiding a lot in life, hiding from my friends because I just didn't know who I was. But in that moment where I broke down in boot camp, I got to realize that other people around me that didn't get scared of what I was doing or that I was crying or make fun of me, they came closer. They were like, a brother in arms is falling down. We need to make sure he's with us. And that feeling shifted my entire remaining part of boot camp. And took a long time to really realize what happened in that moment, almost probably like 15 years. But even to this day now, a lot of what I'm doing is going back and picking up the, the dads that fell down and need that hand to get back up and recognize what they have inside them that they can't see themselves. Now, you know, I, I love everybody, you know, because I talked, like I said, now I've talked to now hundreds of people. And um, I always love to hear the persons, the minute they walked into the recruiting station, what their recruiting visit was like. So can you please hop in the Wayback Machine and take take us to that when you walked into the recruiter's office? I'll take you back to a moment a little bit before the recruiter's office. So I actually was going to go the easy way. I just wanted computers initially. And I was looking at the Air Force. The Air Force is computerized. Seems like an easy fit. Doesn't require a lot of work. So talked to Air Force recruiter actually first seemed like no, no real red flags. Like, yep, this probably is going to be it. The day that actually changed my life. I think we lost you there. I think you, you put yourself on lock. So you have to unlock your phone. There we go. Yeah, sorry. No, it's okay. I'll pay attention and watch to that. Um, that the day that changed everything was that Marine Corps, the Marine Corps, Marine Corps recruiter had a bouncy house at the church picnic. 
And my mom was worried that I wasn't exploring all my options. And so she actually went up and talked to him first. And then the next thing you know, I go over and start talking. And I learned that they have everything that everybody else has. And I was like, okay. So we started talking to him. And I actually didn't go to the recruiter's office. I talked to him in the guidance counselor's office first. And it was in the guidance counselor's office that I quickly realized, like, I think this, he's saying, like, yeah, we got everything else. And we've got also this identity that comes with the Marine Corps. And for me, that moment was what I think really pulled me into it because this guy had something that I had been chasing my entire life. And so I took the 90 degree, 180 degree direction from joining the Air Force and going backwards and joining the Marine Corps. And like I said, doing that scariest thing that I have ever done in my life. All right. Now I got to ask, you know, like, cause when I joined the army, um, we went to basic training and I was just a, a, some, you know, street punk off the street and, all of a sudden you get put with a hundred guys from all over the country and you're in culture, culture shock. So what was it like, you know, a, a farm boy coming from, you know, the fields of Wisconsin to going into the Marine Corps basic? What was that? How was that trying to adjust to all these new people from all different places in, in life? Good question. Because for me, it was, in some ways, a lot like high school, because the military in general can attract all different people from all walks of life, like you said. And so a lot of times there were the bullies in, in boot camp, just as they were in high school, and they really still were playing to their default identity. And that's what they did in life. So that's what they were doing in boot camp. So if anything, I felt some of the same feelings I felt at, in high school that I just don't fit in. I'm trying to hide. I was trying, I was in the back of the squad bay because K is in the middle of the alphabet. So that puts you in the back. So I wasn't always in the direct focus of the drill instructors. And for me, I, it was another feeling of like not fitting in. Like I'm here, I'm doing this, but I don't really know how to be what I'm needed to be here because I just, and the other part is you see other people with these different walks of life. They all still have something that I don't like. They had, some of them had confidence. Some of them had excitement. Some of them had history. I didn't have any of that really. I just had fear. Like fear was a big thing that I was running against. Like I knew the fear was there, but, and I didn't really know this at the time when I was doing it, but it still just felt like this feeling of disconnection from who I was. It was interesting. There was one moment, I'm not sure why I remember this, but something that you might remember, um, a common thing for like in high school that you if you farted, you would always say safety. And that would, you get punched if you didn't say safety and you farted. It was crazy. There was no social media back then, but this word had traversed the country. And no matter what state you were in, everybody had these common slangs still. And so even before we had all these ability to go viral, there was also still the threads that like, even though we think this is only like a Midwestern thing, there is a lot in common with the country and the way people are raised and how people talk that you also felt like, yeah, we're a lot more similar than different as well. All right. So now you graduate through basic. Uh, where was your first uh, duty station? Graduate basic, go up to Camp Pendleton for the basic infantry training they give every Marine. And then from there, I was assigned a, didn't even get computers. They ended up giving me the generator mechanic, which was kind of like a group of other jobs. And computers could have been one of them, but I got generator mechanics. So that sent me off to North Carolina. And I was, it's a year long school almost. So I got there in, January of 2004. Yeah, 2004. And from there, I didn't start school till like April. And well, maybe I started school in February because it was like in January or in June of that year, I got sent to Okinawa right after that. So 
I was almost a whole year in like training essentially before I even got to the fleet. I joined boot camp in August of 2003 and I didn't get to Okinawa to actually join the fleet Marine Corps until 2000 or June of 2004 that next year. So there was a lot of time kind of, and when you're in those modes of training, the military doesn't really give you much respect. You're pretty much just kind of this is boot that goes to the system. It doesn't really get um, different things going on for them. All right. Um, now I just want to let you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but, Two years ago today is when I had you on my Monday night show. Whoa, that is pretty crazy. How, how weird is that? Uh, but uh, that's sorry, that just popped in my head. And I was like, wow, yeah, I guess that's it's a God thing. Um, yeah, that is. Now, did you get deployed at all? No, I did not. So I got sent to Okinawa and I was part of the first group of Marines to Okinawa that they required two-year mandatory stays versus one-year rotations to save money. So I ended up staying there for two years mandatory, and then it just made sense for me to stay and remain my way because I knew I wanted to get out. So I just decided to extend my contract for a year over there, and they give you 30 days extra of leave. So that's what I took, and I just decided to come home for 30 days and spend some time in the, in the farm in the summer. Now, were you single or married at this time? I was single. And so living in Okinawa, I always got this feeling of, I got to watch military families over there. They were deploy. I would spend Thanksgiving with the different families over there. And the feelings of family, I was like, I don't think this is because I mean, growing up on a farm, we had I had a very deep sense of family. And I was like, this just doesn't feel like what I want for a family. Now, I had a very small view of that. And I misjudged a very small sample of what I thought. So I kind of just put my my life on hold. I'm like, I'm just going to get through. I'm going to be single while I'm over here, and then I'm going to figure out how to start my life on the other side. Okay, so now, you know, I've talked now hundreds of people on now two different podcasts, and a lot of veterans, when they get out, you know, they, they missed, number one is they missed a camaraderie. That's one of the biggest things that people say that they miss. And then, um, we, you know, we say that we're hardcore but we do get coddled in the military. You know, we're, we're used to getting paid on the first and the 15th, you know, getting TRICARE, getting SGLI and all that stuff, you know? So then when you hit the street, you don't have a job now. And a lot of people, they don't have a mission anymore. So what was your transitioning? Like when you hit, finally hit the street? I almost feel like I got too lucky because I always hear struggles of transition. And for me, so being a generator mechanic, I, I and, and also I was a good rule follower my entire life. So when the military gives you a bunch of rules to follow, I was really good at following those rules. I didn't get really in trouble. And so when TAPS gives you this program that says you follow these rules, you will get a successful transition. So I started applying for interviews from Okinawa and started figuring out what I wanted to do, started just using generators as my skill. And lucky for me, I landed a job just two weeks after I got out of the Marine Corps. So I was only unemployed for two weeks. And I just started running on what I call the TAPS code. I, I had a job. I started dating like I wanted to. I started trying to figure out who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. I worked for that company for almost four, a little over four years. And then I went to another company for eight years. So even to this day, I still only have two real jobs under my belt of experience. And within all of that, I what... I didn't really know through that transition was you can't just run on someone else's code. The code is good to give you some pathway to understand where you need to go. 
But what I failed to realize, and this is kind of like my advice for other people transitioning, people always focus on the transition out of the military. They need to start with the transition into the military. You were an actual human being with real thoughts, dreams, and ambitions before you were adopted and put this default military uniform on. And we don't often evaluate who we were before and who we want to be after. And then also, like to me, I wish in boot camp, boot camp was teaching me lessons about myself and where I could go and what I could do and my capabilities. But I was still too fearful to really listen or even hear or witness what they were being taught. So like, I wish I would have had the mindset like the military experience is going to reveal something in me. I need to start taking notes from day one of boot camp because every moment is going to give me insights into who I am and what I'm capable of. And I would have been so much more courageous on the other side of transition versus just accepting like, yeah, I'm, they said it all I, I can really do is get a job. So that's what I'm going to do. And I'll go to school and use me at GI Bill and get back to where I need to go or where the American dream says that you should go. But 12 years later, I ended up in a pit and my midlife crisis happened when I turned 30 and it was a pit of, I just realized that like, I think I'm going to die alone and no one's going to, or I'm going to die and no one's going to care that I was here. I was like, this American dream seems more like a hell than it seems like a dream. And that pit when I turned 30 is really where I started asking better questions and really figuring out and going backwards and really figuring out what I was supposed to do. And, you know, I, I had the pleasure of talking to a, a, a uh, NFL veteran of 15 years the other day. And he said the same exact thing that you said. He said, you know, the quality of a person's life is equal to the questions that they ask. So if you ask great questions, you're going to be able to have a great life. You know, I've, I've talked to a million, a billionaire would it be. And I said, you know, what's the difference between somebody that's being rich and somebody that's poor? And he said, well, there's two things. He says, it's their, the questions that they ask and their vocabulary. That's the only difference between rich, a person that's rich and poor. So it, it really, what you're saying is so true is it's the quality of the questions you ask in your life. That's, that'll actually start to um, help you start building a better life. So how did you start? What kind of questions did you start asking yourself? Perfect tee up because there is just, I mean, there are a lot of good questions that I unpacked after this first question, but in this pit and midlife crisis where I had to figure out like, why wasn't this working? What was really broken? I was doing everything that success says you're supposed to do. I started a family. I had a house. I had a good paying job, but yet inside it still felt like an empty, empty shell. And before I say the question, there was a moment when I looked at my daughter's eyes as well, that I was like, how can I lead you into your life if I can't lead myself into mine? And that was a deep reflection moment that I'm like, I got to do something different because I need to be able to lead her into her life. And I can't do it if I can't lead myself. And so the question that came into my life, I wish I could remember the friend that gave it to me, but it was essentially this, it's pretty simple and you can apply it to so many different things. That's a beautiful part of it. If you want a result in your life, you've never had. You need to start doing things that you've never done. And so when I asked myself that question, it was actually pretty simple because I was like, I've never had friends and I've always desired friends. Well, why isn't that happening? And I was like, well, you don't talk to people. Every person you talk to is the high school girl that said no and you're afraid of that rejection. And I was like, well, that's a dumb idea then. Why would you think that for very long? Meanwhile, I've been thinking that way for 15 years. And so then once I 
had the courage on the other side of that, okay, I'm going to start changing that result and start talking to people. My life started to change when that answer to that question led me to start talking to dads at the park. Because when I started talking to dads at the park, I realized later as I look back on those moments, what those dads at the park and then future conversations did, they became the mirror to the value of myself that I couldn't see. They would give feedback, they would give curiosity, they would ask questions. And it's in that mutual feedback and reflection that I began to step into more of who I was and in my own internal self-doubt, I just couldn't see. But that's the problem with, that's why you need coaches in your life because you can't see all the mistakes you're making. That's why the NFL pays millions of dollars to coaches on the sideline, not just one coach, there's a coach for every different thing the NFL does because you need someone out there with a flashlight to point out your blind spots and your value too. Like, hey, you need to do that more often because it works. You don't, you often can't see that in the shadows of your own head. So friends really changed that. And it was that result I never had question that really was the first pivot of changing my life forever. Now, uh, what kind of jobs were you doing at this time? At this time, I was still working at the place, right? I believe when I got out of the Marine Corps and it was just, I was moving from different things, kind of, I was a call center tech and then I was doing some technical writing and then I was a trainer and then I went to a different company about the uh, this same time as well. And then went back to answering tech support for generators as well. And just kind of still felt lost. I've just never, like the big question that I always got stuck in when I was trying to troubleshoot my career was, what is, what am I supposed to do? Because all the things I did do, I really loved. I mean, I always, I remember having this common, it was like 2016, maybe I'm like, how the hell do you decide what you want to do when you grow up? When everything you do, you fall in love with. I'm like, it's almost like this crutch of my personality that like, I just really love doing that, but that's completely different than what I was doing. So like, how do you figure out where you need to go? And what I realized through all of the craziness of falling in love with everything is I was doing something that I didn't know was an actual path to find your passion and purpose is to follow your curiosity. I was just following things that made me curious about learning about. And within that process, I revealed the deeper understanding of some of my gifts and what I really enjoyed doing and what I could do with them. And so people often get stuck in that purpose and passion question, like it's a curse question and they can't stop thinking about it. But curiosity are, is the breadcrumb to those two answers. And you just have to know if you're tr following your curiosity, they'll get you to those two answers. You just got to follow your curiosity. And that's what I was doing over a 15-year period. So what made you decide, all right, I'm going to start a podcast? Well, I've always, I probably started listening to podcasts in like 2015. John Lee Dumas was like my third podcast. So I got I, this idea of like, oh man, these are crazy all these crazy entrepreneurs are doing things that sound really cool, going again back to my curiosity. And then I started finding a dad podcast. And then I was like, oh man, there's some really good advice. And so I had this itch. I was like, but the, at the same time, there was this thought like, yeah, that's not me. People like you, Ben, do not do things like that. People like you just stay in the back, like in boot camp, stay in the back and don't get really what they want. And so that's what I told myself for a long, long time. And as I, started blogging and writing and trying to be one of those, like those entrepreneurs on John Lee Dumas and EO fire. I realized in this moment when I went to the very first military infantry conference in 2018 for me. And when I told my story about becoming a better dad or just having the, the purpose of trying to be a better dad, I was talking to a military spouse and she started crying and I was like, Whoa. And it was because her dad, her husband came home from war, but didn't mentally come home. 
And at that moment, it validated that, like, you need to do this. Like, it was just like this shift in my gut. And it felt right. And that's when I started running towards my my podcast launch. And then three months later from that moment, that was September of 18. And then January 19, Military Veteran Dad launched. And I just launched with this basic curiosity as I'm going to explore this space and see what's here and understand what's underneath all this layer of bullcrap that we we dress up emotions within the military and why don't we become the better dad we want to be? And that just ended up being my podcast. Now, how many episodes are you in now? I just published episode 115 of the interviews. And then in January of 2020, I launched a solo show called Friday fatherhood Friday. And so I think I've probably got over 75 of those episodes out there. So like almost total, we're up to almost getting close to 200. All right. So now tell us, you know, because no, like I said, I think think I'm up to like episode 250 or something, something stupid. Um, you know, my podcast, you know, they don't have a lot of downloads and I'm OK with that. But the people that do listen, it really affects, you know, it actually helps. So it's it's more helping people. I, you know, I really don't get bogged down in, in numbers and stuff like that, because it really if it's just we're, if we're saving one person, then it's worth the whole thing. What are some of the things you wish you would have known that you know now before starting your podcast? In the specific context of starting a podcast, I wish I would have spent a little bit more time understanding who do I need to know? And so without downloads, and it brings up a good point about downloads, is you don't need downloads to change someone's life. You only need one person to change their life. But to really make an impact on your life, downloads do help because then that gives you leverage to maybe get sponsors, but downloads take time. And the other benefit of starting a podcast is you get to talk to some amazing people. And I've talked to some amazing people, but I wish I would have started the beginning of really understanding what networks could open doors for me and how could I orientate my podcast as a way, as a tool to open those doors naturally in a very intimate conversation of a podcast interview. Cause it's very difficult. I'm sure as you feel like every time at the end of a podcast interview, you feel really connected to the person you interviewed. That's the type of energy you want to have to be able to create a mutual business conversation. So I wish I would have aligned it a little bit more because then I could have been able to penetrate the military complex of family and readiness and everything that goes within that. Because to this day, that nut is still something I have yet to crack of how to spread like, um, if we use a bad example, like Corona within the military for fatherhood and how do you create a resource and, um, one of the frustrating things about it is everybody always says the podcast is really good and they get great feedback, but its reach has always been hard. And I, I attribute that to, I didn't spend enough time figuring out what doors I needed to have open early on to, and I could have did that with the interviews and I'm shifting that idea now as well through 2021. That's something I'm pivoting towards as well. You know, one thing that, you know, with my podcast um, now that I'm a full-time podcaster, I do it full-time now um, doing five episodes a week is um building relationships you know like when i tell when i was talking to rich Davini, uh navy seal yes and i said you know just because you're on the podcast you know the relationship is just starting today you know and i believe you know in life and that's something that you know you i know you believe in and i want you to talk about it you know relationships are everything you know and you know it's something that you know because i'm interviewing stephen coon tomorrow morning seven o'clock in the morning uh because uh, he's in the other side of the world but you know he always talks about relationship capital 
So talk to us about, because I know you specialize in building relationships. Talk to us about relationships. So I'll lead with the best wisdom I have and why relationships matter, because you are always one conversation away from changing your life. Like literally on the other side of you saying hello could be the person that completely changed your life forever. And you, you're left with that feeling because I've had this feeling many times. I'm like, where have you been? You're, you're like my long lost brother. Like we connect that well. And all it was was on the other side of hello. I mean, I've sat on the airplane, said hello to people next to me. And turns out they're a Marine officer or they have some connection to the military. And we talked for the entire plane ride. I have no idea where those relationships go, but I could have literally sat next to someone that would have been a benefit to just my human experience and never known because I didn't say hello. And there are so many cases where I've said hello and it's open doors. And just like you said, one relationship is the one thing that is the most valuable thing you have. And it goes to another point that I'm sure Stephen speaks on as well, that I didn't know that if Caps would have told me this one thing, I would have changed my life in a completely different way. Because when I got out, I did not feel like I had an abundant amount of opportunities. To me, it was a very limited world of opportunities and I had to be very picky. I have to really try hard. But the part that I didn't know was that the amount of opportunities you have in your life are directly proportional to the amount of people that you're talking to daily. And so if you want more opportunity, you've got to talk to more people. And the more people you know, the more people you're talking to, the more ideas you have in your head, the more just like you have those moments. And I'm sure you've had them. You're like, you do what? And how, you make how much money doing that? Those moments change you forever. Like you can never not think that like there's someone out there doing this and making X amount of money. And you never knew that because you weren't willing to say hello. And there's another component that I love about podcasting and just listening to conversations and listening to other people's podcasts is we do not have a wide enough view of the American dream as Americans. We have all these crazy ideas. We're known as the land of opportunity, but we are very narrow-minded people. We only have a few opportunities when we think when we leave high school of where we can go in life. And we just don't have enough wide view of where we could do, what could happen, how we fit into the world. And conversations, relationships expand that opportunity. If you want a wider view of what's possible, you need to have more conversations with people doing things that are different than you. And that would have completely changed my world when I got out of the Marine Corps. All right. Now, you know, we're, we're talking about, you know, the relationships, you know, because like you said, you know, relationships are everything. Um, but now there are uh, obviously now uh, when we when you first started, you know, there was maybe 500,000 podcasts. Now there's a million of podcasts. But um, I read a stat the other day that the average person that starts a podcast only lasts less than 10 episodes. And then when it gets over 100, it's like less than 10% of podcasts last that long. So do you think is if you stay in the game and are consistent that you will see success if you show consistency over time? Yes, because I'm a big proponent and there's a, a one layer that I would add to it is don't just get hooked on that this one podcast that you start has to be your thing. To me, and it all depends on where your experience level is within podcasting. If you've already got it, you're already maybe really networked, 
this is going to be a little bit less. But if you're really not networked and you want to use podcasting as a way just to have good conversations with people that you normally wouldn't be able to have, having a podcast is just a perfect way to really expand maybe where your real podcast is. Like it's perfectly fine to start a podcast and call it, do the things you need to do. But maybe it's not your big thing. Maybe it's not your big idea, but I'm going to climb this idea until I can get a view of my big idea. So what I always tell people is you can't grow in podcasting unless you keep hitting publish. And so as long as you're hitting publish, you're growing. But don't get so hooked on this idea that it has to be in the same road that you're on. Because you could find in episode 30 a bigger idea, a better place for your voice, a more even better niche for your story. And you made like, I got to start over. And that's perfectly fine because podcasting is about exploring yourself. And I always tell podcasters that when you're in those early download stages, and I'm sure you've experienced this, it's a very selfish experience because you're actually the first, you yourself are the first listener that benefits. And you're always changed every time you have a conversation. So whether anybody downloads or not, it really doesn't matter. You yourself grow every single time. And that is where, that's why podcasting is so important. Just, I mean, it's the fastest tool that you can use to grow your life in an exponential way because of just the amount of conversations you can have and even what you can learn from it. Yep. Like I tell everybody, you know, like I'm a, I'm a ninth grade dropout, but here I am, you know, I interviewed Steve Sims, uh, a couple of weeks ago, you know, he's a seven and eight figure earner and he's on my show and I get to ask him whatever I want. Exactly. So you know, I'm, I'm actually getting a, an MBA in business by just having them on my show. So it's kind of like, you know, I'm actually learning more than I think, you know, from them, but also it's amazing when you do have a platform and it stays a while, you know, that you actually become an authority to where people will want to come on your show because, you know, now you have a national or worldwide platform, you know? I had a guest once that reached out to me. They came through me through Interview Valet. And I've always had good, high-quality guests from Interview Valet. And this dad, he listened to an episode right before coming on. And this guest listened to the one episode that I talked about scheduling your vacation in January for the entire year. So that way you run into your vacation versus trying to fit your vacation into your work calendar. And his, his life had already been changed because he's already booked his vacation. He already told his wife about it. They were going to, I think, Cancun, Mexico. And so he had already come on my podcast because he listened earlier. And so that just enhanced even the interview. And so it's, it's crazy how the whole process of podcasting works. And what you, the part that most, it's almost unpredictable, is you never really know how the interwebs of what you put into the world is going to change other people's lives. In some ways, it's like someone person listened to it and you're like, that wasn't who I talked to, but... I'm glad you got something out of it. And it's just crazy how it all kind of spreads and works up through the way of the internet. All right. Now we're going to start talking about fatherhood, you know, cause I'm, I have three children. Um, I, two of my children are from my wife, um, her previous marriage, but the, I don't have stepkids. I have three children. I don't believe in the whole stepkids cause God doesn't consider me a stepchild. So, you know, I have three children. So, you know, and always being a better father is something that I have to work on. Um, I talked to a young lady. Her name was Gianna, um, and she's she's the CEO of uh, the National Warriors Foundation. And we were talking about how hard it is for, say, if a husband's been deployed uh, for six months, a year, eighteen months, to come home. How hard it is for them to integrate back into being a husband 
and a father. So can you speak on that a little bit? I'm actually going to share a four-step process that I just learned myself because it's interesting how I'm a military dad podcaster, but I never actually had a family. So a lot of what I've learned about just good advice to give is from the people that I'm as a student to and listening to. And this episode was one that I just had. He was a 30-year Army uh, veteran. He was in the Green Beret, so he had lots of deployments. And he had his wife, his marriage was intact. He had two good kids that went off into the world. They started great families. And it was just a really good episode. It's always good when you see like a few, like a whole picture of how someone's life has unfolded because you can pick up the pieces of how they really got there. So the four-step process that he shared was when you come home, the first week you want to think about is you being a guest. You, you're a guest in that home. You're observing. You're polite to the routines of what the family has, but you don't try to just interject your authority where you're at because they learn to live life without you. And so you have to respect that. It's not bad nor good. It just is. And then week two, he said that you kind of change to that. You're not just a guest, you're family. So imagine like a close cousin or spending the night, like you get to have conversations, you get to do different things. You can in, partake in different activities. Week three is you start to have conversations about why, what really was going on when you were gone, why you're doing things, why does your wife do a routine a particular way? You start maybe questioning why she's doing it that way a little bit. And then week four is she, you enter into the shared role of the family. Like you're, okay, you're equals now with your spouse. And he said every time they followed this to a T, it always allowed them to reintegrate properly. And anytime they didn't, his wife would always be like, you gotta stick to the plan, gotta stick to the plan, we know it works. And out of all the interviews that I've had, his is the, the most simplistic process to coming home. Before that, the other thing that I would lace it with is, um, and he agreed this, this is something he did, it is important to create conversations that allow you to understand what life was like while you're gone. Because like, if you have kids or whether you be your wife, it doesn't really matter. The situation happened where there was something that happened in their life that they wished they could share with you what was going on, whether it be a boyfriend or a girlfriend issue or whether your wife had a car issue, whatever it may be. But building empathy around what was it like for them to be gone and just hearing those feelings and emotions allows you to build what I call kind of an empathy bridge. And that empathy bridge allows you to kind of meet in the middle. And then once you're in the middle, then you can kind of like understand that like you're not just trying to pull each other each other's sides. Like you can truly empathize where each other's were at. And then once you know where each other's were at, you can then kind of move forward together. All right, then I got a personal question to ask you. And like I said, it's my show and I can do what I want. Uh, <laughs> that's what I love about having my own show. Um, now, I, I was in the health and fitness industry for uh, 32 years. I uh, ran a million dollar a, a year store. But the first, my daughter's nine, the first eight years of her life, I would work the middle shift. So I wouldn't get home until nine o'clock and she would be in bed already. So we would only have an hour in the mornings together. And um, she had to learn to depend on mom so much that now that, you know, I'm retired, there seems that be a disconnect because mom has been there forever. Where she's like She'll walk past me and ask mom to open something for her. And I'm standing right there. But I think it was maybe just because I wasn't there for all those years. So how can I start becoming the father that I need to be now? There is a, a kind of a rule of thumb. So my kids are eight, six, and four. So I'm planting seeds that I'm not really sure where they're going to grow, but 
based on the interviews, people have given me the, the instinct that I'm going the right direction. So the rule is to make sure you're there for the little things. So later in life, they bring you the big things. And that moment that was kind of created psychologically for her where you weren't there for the little things like opening a box of cereal or maybe even just sharing something issue on the playground. And so there just isn't that connection that whatever she's feeling, she can bring to you. So the we kind of recreate it. And the beautiful part is whether your daughter is nine, 18, 29, doesn't really matter. There's always room for a father inside our kid's heart. And it's always, they'll always want to have a relationship with dad, no matter how far they've gone down. So anybody listening out there, whatever season of life you're at, it is never too late to reignite that connection with your kids because they're biologically wired to have a relationship with their father. So what I would give advice in your particular situation is try to go into a particular moment of like doing an event, going for a bike ride, like an often thing that I used to do in the summer and we'll be doing it again is my oldest daughter and I, we would bike to the local gas station. We would have a smoothie together and then we bike back. And while we were sitting at the gas station having a smoothie, it just creates those moments where it's just you two. And you can kind of just ask questions like, hey, what's going on? Is there anything going on at school that you want to talk about? Or if she's maybe a little bit closed off, give it an opportunity for her to know you. Like there is another side to parenting and, and fatherhood that many dads do not reveal their life to their kids. They think like they have to protect them to be this superhero that we can't like show our vulnerable side. And I've recently just connected this thought, like the worst thing that our kids could have happen to us is we die and they learn who dad was at the funeral from one of our best friends. And in those moments when they hear a story about dad and they're like, why did my dad ever tell me that when he was alive? I feel like I could have got to know him so much better. Those two sides of it, letting your daughter know who you are, maybe sharing a story that you think she needs to hear about something going on or something that just kind of opens up a conversation. And it's those little moments of opportunity that allow you to go forward and create some connection. And there's like a, a rule that I talk about in vulnerability. The world is waiting for you to go first. And when you go first, you give some permission second. So in some ways it could be how you maybe need her. What's something you need from her to be able to understand what's going on. Um, or if, it, if it's also, there's another simple question. I just gave this advice to another dad today. Don't forget, you can actually give them the keys to the bus. Like as dads and as leaders in business, we have the same problem. We often get sucked in that people look for us the answer. So we think we have to have all the answers. Give them the keys to the bus. A good leader just asks a great question. Like you already said, the, ask a better question to get a better answer. The best question you can ask your kids is, hey, what do you wish we did more together? Or what's something that you, we do together with dad that you really want, to, that you really enjoy and you want to do more of? Or what's something that you're, we're not doing that you really want to do? Like it doesn't have to be on all on us. And we often get so internally that we have to be the guy that figures it out. But I would almost, as I'm working through and talking this, I think giving her the keys to this problem might actually be a solution and be like, hey, what's something you want to do with dad that we've never done before? You, you, anything you want. And the beauty of this question, it's 10 times easier always than you think it is. Like we make fatherhood complicated. Our kids usually just want something simple. Like my four-year-old daughter, her favorite thing is to go on the sidewalk outside and roll back the ball back and forth to each other. It's the simplest thing, but that's honestly the thing that she goes back to over and over. Like, hey, dad, can we roll the ball back and forth together outside? Okay. I love that. Now, the last two questions I ask everybody, um, how do we find you? How do we find your, you know, what you're doing, what you're up to? How do we find your podcast? How do we find you and how can we interact and support your mission? 
The podcast Military Veteran Dad can be found at militaryveterandad.com. All the links for all the different platforms are all there, blog, episodes. And then there's also a free friendship course. So friendships changed my life. So that's one of the free things that I offered first to help veterans come home as a way to just get reconnected to themselves. So that's over at freedadcourse.com is a free five audio, 10 minute lesson course on how to have more friends in your life. And then also, I've just recently expanded the brand into coaching with helping all dads come home. Like I've, I've kind of branded it calling the business of fatherhood. And what I've learned from talking to so many dads on my podcast is what we suffer from dads in the military is the same universal stuff that every dad suffers from. We just call it different things and dress it up with different reasons and use different words to describe it. And so I've launched what I call it's time to come home coaching and helping dads really emotionally come home so that they feel when they, the best part of their day is when they drive into the driveway and know that this is where I get to come home to. And it's a feeling, not just a building. And so all of that can be found at bencolloy.com as well. Okay. So now my last question is, um, and, and I'm sure you just answered a lot of them. Uh, but my last question is, you know, we're, we're in such a crazy world right now where grandparents and parents, you know, they're, they're homeschooling, you know, they're teaching kids and, you know, we're, and we're now we're trying to, make a living, both parents working outside the home sometimes. If I ask somebody to do something in the next seven days, they're pretty much not going to be able to get to it. But if I ask somebody to do something in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. So if you know somebody that is struggling with being a dad and wants to, wants to be a dad, like you said, it doesn't matter what stage you're in, um, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours? to start to learn how to be a, a dad? The best part of this question is it's twofold. One, instantly myself, I did it. I went to, I almost went to a default uh, complicated answer. And I'm like, wait, fatherhood is not complicated. It's a lot, but that's where I often, that's where dads get to. Like when we're in this mode, how do we become a better dad? We almost instantly overcomplicate it. Like it's almost our default problem solving brain kicking in. And so the, the other side, the, the less complex, something you can do in 24 hours is spend 10 minutes of one-on-one -on -one time with your kid, not saying like what they want to do, but letting them choose what they want to do. Saying, I got 10 minutes right now and say, whatever you want to do, I'll do it with you. It's either probably going to be going outside. It's going to be going for a walk. Maybe it's going to be playing trains, whatever age of season of life your kids are at. But you can change a kid's behavior and a connection to you in 10 minutes a day. And the, the golden rule of fatherhood is that kids spell love, T-I-M-E. And whenever their behavior is acting up, it's just almost always a connection to a time deficit. And or do they feel seen, heard, and felt as a kid by their parents? I love that. Guys, you heard it. Definitely check out my brother. Ben, check out his podcast. And if you go back, 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 you might find my episode. Um, and he actually, like I said, was only the second person ever to have me on. So check out his podcast. You were episode number eight, February, wow. or February 11th, 2019. Become a winner by falling. Wow. We're all going old school. Um, <laughs> I want to thank our sponsor once again, Maxwell Soaps. If you know anybody that loves soaps without any detergents, but if you lo love soaps that actually have a mission, definitely check out Maxwell Soaps. Ben, thank you so much for coming on. Um, I appreciate you. And you know I consider you a friend. 
and a family member. And if there's anything I can ever do to support your mission, you know, I'm all aboard. I appreciate you, Richard. And as I always say, like, this is the best part because conversations is just the first door of a friendship and those friendships. And one kind of final piece of advice here, the more ships, friendships you have on the ocean of life, the more opportunity will float your shores. So if you think of the friendships you have in your life as literally just ships on an ocean, the more ships you have, the more opportunity will float ashore in your life. Ben, when we hang up, if you don't mind, if you can show, if you could just send me that that quote, because that's what I'll put on our graphic. Because I, I like that quote a lot. So if you could just send me that when we're done, I appreciate you. All right, guys, just remember vertical momentum. The only way to go is up. All right. Love you guys. Have a great day. Take it easy, Ben. Thank you.